As the American population ages, so does its population in the prison system. That's created particular challenges, especially for members of the LGBT community that are incarcerated. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Randy Killings and Mark Pellipici. They share what it was like for them to grow older while in New York's criminal justice system and coming out. Also joining us is Fordham professor Dr. Tina Mashey. She shares research from her study, Coming Out of Prison, an Exploratory Study of LGBT Elders in the Criminal Justice System. Good morning. I actually want to start out with you, Tina. So let's talk a little about your study and what was the goal? The goal of the study was to explore the experiences of LGBT people uh, before, during, and after prison. There was a dearth of information available, what was happening uh, to uh, LGBT people, especially as they aged in prison. And based on my reentry study, when there was a large number of people that were LGBT coming out, I was very concerned about the kind of information they were sharing with me and began to focus specifically on that population so I could bring that information to the academic and general public uh, to, to discuss or to make them aware of what is going on. Randy or Mark, can you share what a typical day was like for you when you were in prison? Randy, uh, wow. Um, it was a day of getting up early because you have to get up early and prepare yourself physically and mentally for stepping out of your cell. Um, it was always one of those days where you said, what's going to happen? And pray that you get back to your cell at the end of the day. It was always... A little fear, maybe? Yeah, a lot of fear. Yeah. Um, you had a lot. And dealing... And being LGBTQ, you dealt with a lot more, you know, um, of the critical actions that happen in prison. Uh, it was always fighting. It was always fighting. It was always bullying. It was always robberies. It was always some kind of attack on someone. But if you were LGBT... It just happened more frequently. Why do you think it happened more frequently for LGBT inmates? I think that we were victims of people not being comfortable with themselves. My experience with being in jail, that most of the people that had a problem with me being gay in jail were people that were struggling with something with themselves or had some kind of bad experience. Um, you know, I, I talked to a few people that later in jail, we kind of got close. They shared about being raped. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that most heterosexual men want to share. So that anger of a family member or family friend raping them, you know, they just think gay, all gays are rapists and pedophiles. And so, so they somehow try to connect the yes. two when there's obviously no connection between exactly. rape and, exactly. and being LGBT. And the second half is it's people that are dealing with struggling with their identity focus on throwing the focus on me so they couldn't be seen so they did what they needed to do to not have people focus on them but later you would find that they would be the one wanting to come by your cell and say hey oh you know okay so, <laughs> so when they were so out in the in the open yeah they were bullies and sort of mean but they were the ones who were secretly trying to come to you and and be romantic the freaks come out at night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and your partner, Mark, is here. Yeah. So, Mark, can you share with me um, your experience, what it was like in being incarcerated? Well, as for me, my name is Mark. I was laid back, always uh, looking forward 
working working a mess or and trying to be positive. Yeah, trying to do the right thing in prison. And weren't having any of those freaks coming out at night for Randy. <laughs> no, no, not I having was, that. I wasn't having that. <laughs> did you guys meet in prison? Yeah, we did. Yeah, actually, we met in Sing Sing. You met, you, and you both were in Sing Sing. Yeah, yeah, that's where we uh, our last day prison stay. How did you meet? On the medication line. So, the, so it was a line for everybody to get medication, yes. Yes. and you two were standing in line. There's a call three times a day for medication for people that are on medication or methadone, and everybody goes to that line. Do you feel comfortable sharing um, why you were incarcerated? Randy, you want to start? Uh, I had, um, I'll just say, a lot of violent history. <laughs> okay. Same here. Very violent history? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that violent history led to you being in prison? Was that the first time you were in prison? No. No? My first time. Your first time. So let's back up to when you two met in the medicine. How did you know you liked each other? You know, how did you know? Randy told me. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, the shy one. What did Randy, the shy one, say? <laughs> Randy said, you gonna, you going to be my husband. <laughs> he claimed you right off the yep, bat. <laughs> yep. Yes, he did. And and are you two married now? Yes. yes. Well, he was right. <laughs> yeah, I guess he, he was right. He was. <laughs> At first, I thought it was a joke. Yeah. But no, he was not playing. No, he wasn't. He meant that. <laughs> yep. So can you two share what it was like being um, incarcerated and a gay couple while in prison? Were there different challenges that you faced that maybe other people faced? I know a few, few of the inmates were jealous. People were jealous of your relationship? I, I moved in. I'm, I'm, I'm Randy. And they, they, they started having arguments, fights. Oh, I was I was always openly gay. I was always in population, but I was like I said, I, I I hung out with a crew of guys that were really bad. So I was known in prison, but I didn't really hang out in a gay sense. Mm -hmm. um, Meaty Mark was like the first guy ever, and I have an extensive incarceration history um, that I really just I don't know, but something about Mark. And I said that, but I was just like jokingly right. because I, I just enjoyed being around him. Mm -hmm. it, it took off there. And we got, Mark got into a lot because a lot of guys was like, well, he didn't like me like that. Where did you come from? Dylan, Mark was transferred in about a year and then we met. So they never saw me into, you know, intact with anyone like that because I was alone in jail. Right. You know, I knew everyone. I was able to walk around and Mark was popular because he was a part of uh i think it was the latin kings and yet does but i was neutral because i wasn't involved in any gangs but a lot of down low people always tried to get me to come to their side and i just wouldn't and vote. by down low you mean people who weren't yeah. op uh, openly gay yeah mark were you openly gay when you were in uh prison at, at first i wasn't i was like ill why 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 is she talking to me or why he talking to me? I didn't understand the gay man. Mm -hmm. And how did that change? Uh Randy changed me. Yeah. So were you gay and then uh Randy sort of introduced you to a a deeper part I of I helped him to be comfortable with it. To be comfortable <laughs> with it. Right. Yeah. Right. So do you find that's part of the challenge too, that you know, people are not just they're not comfortable with or don't exactly know how to define certain things that are in their life and and 
that could be one of the reasons why sometimes they you you face the bullying or other people face the bullying or LGBT elders face the bullying while and, they're in. And it's mostly because jail. of society and, 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 and our culture. Um, people are a product of what they hear and what they're taught. When you're growing up and hearing certain things, and that's what promotes the, 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 the anger or the dislike. Um, so people feel that they have to be on board with what society says. So I can't be this way. I can't show this. So I have to be uh, against that. Right. You know, um, or against anyone and anyone. against anyone who's yeah. like Because I can't be nice and say hello to someone that's openly gay because that'll show on me. Mm. You know, right. so um, Mark dealt with a lot of that. Yeah. A lot of that, especially when we came home. <laughs> How did you, and I, I want to say something about yes, in general, based on the study uh, we're, we're hearing from uh, both Mark and Randy, uh, that people chose while in prison whether or not to disclose their uh, sexual orientation. Uh, if they did, that often put them in a situation if people knew that they had to uh, get into fights to protect themselves. Yes. Yes. Uh, the men and women, uh, mostly the, from the men's prison, uh, told me just even walking down the hallway, you at risk of getting raped. If people even suspected that you're gay and if they knew you're gay or or they chose to hide it or, or, or if there's fight, there's flight. Don't tell anybody. And that's an idea of like negotiating identity where there's when you're LGBT, um, you have the option to negotiate your identity. It's an invisible minority. It's only when you share it, people know. Yeah. And in prison, people might keep that card close to their chest. Uh, some would avoid even going out. They'd almost hide and disappear. And so this idea of uh, people who are incarcerated who are LGBT living inside invisible prisons of their sexual orientation, other aspects of themselves, having a mental illness, um, and uh, violent offense history. You may not want to share that in, in prison, or if you have a sex offense or something that there is stigma associated um, around that or not. The other thing is when you get out, when you come out of prison, not only do you have to deal with your LGBT social identity, it's also your identity of being formally incarcerated. And if you choose to share that, uh, and sometimes you have to, because if you want housing in a, or a job, there, there's the box uh, that you have to share that. And that may close doors for you. So there's a lot of impediments that the LGBT community has to overcome. And uh, not only the love story of Randy and Mark, as, as we're hearing here today, but their resilience of overcoming all the obstacles you can throw at them. And that's why the LGBT community has dealt with so much and overcame so much that there's been progress in, in our rights in that area. But we still have a lot more to go. The article that we're discussing today that was published in the Journal of Homosexuality, first one of its kind, where the gay community, the academic community, has accepted this as an issue that needs to be addressed. And just to clarify, we often link the initials LGBT together to sort of easily and quickly emphasize a diversity of sexuality and gender identity. Right. But did your research find separately each has its own individual challenges? I, I would say that there are some similarities, but there's definitely diversity among the experiences of so, uh, what goes on in a women's prison versus a men's prison um, would be very different. And the women in the study did say that it 
in terms of the issues with being gay in prison or even gay for the stay, as they say. What's gay for the stay? Just uh, you uh, practice homosexuality, whether it be emotional or physical or a combination of both, while in prison but not while out. But only while in prison. So you're gay gay for the stay. Okay. (laughs) Gay while you're in prison. I can answer for being in jail for being gay and trans. I have to say trans have it harder. Uh, If you are a trans um, female in a men's prison, it's like devastating. Um, They get no respect. They get no protection. They get no considerations. They get no accommodations. Um, And they're abused every step of the way by inmates, uh, by the correctional officers. If they go into the uh, infirmary, they get no respect because the women treat them just as bad. Don't have a woman CO around a trans woman. They are so abusive. So verbally. women are even more yes. harsh with trans women. Yeah. yeah. That, wh- why do you think that is? You know, and- I think there's this uh, battle that they have or this uncomfortability that you want to be me or I can't get a man because they're looking at you and you're not real. Uh, that kind of tone that you hear. And I also want to say that uh, having worked in a prison for 15 years and done my research for the next 15, 20 years in that area, a prison setting, and uh, although I wasn't ever incarcerated, I worked there, and I did for 15 years, and that's the closest you can get to a long-term prison (laughs) sentence without being there. Tina, did you work in a male prison or a female prison? Mostly in the male prison, although they're with with women too. And you found similarities? You know, one of the things yeah. about being in prison, it's it's an, a life of its own, you know. Um, what do you mean by that, Randy? When you're in prison, none of the things of, the, of, of outside of prison stand. You know, you have to be none one way. None of the way. rules, you mean. The rules are so different. Like, I, I, I used to feel that all correctional officers were just terrible. Uh, but then after being in prison and meeting some... They have to be that way because they are not going to be okay in the job they do trying to be nice. They are geared by these people that say, don't be nice. These guys are to be punished. These guys are to be whatever happens in here. They deserve it. You know, um, I was at a training where it was um, and we were talking about an officer that was actually traumatized from being a correctional officer because he was the kind of guy that was like, Okay, so this shouldn't happen. And they will pull him to the side like, you can't be here if you'll be that like that. Mm. We don't want that softness. You can't be here if you're nice. And if to them, soft we can't be nice. and nice were, were similar. And so even though he wanted to be something of a, a protection mm-hmm. and uh, authoritative to keep the rules, he was not allowed to do it in the ways that he felt it should have been done. And does that, Tina, was that in part of your study, sort of that mentality that it it sounds like it's a pack mentality almost, that you have to go along with the pact? Uh, I would say so, that most of what I heard about the correctional officers were that they really neglected any kind of abuse that was going on with with the people in prison. Now, another one, uh, another part of your study, Tina, was that um, LGBT inmates are, are sometimes put in solitary confinement if there's a fear for their safety, even if they haven't done anything wrong. Uh, I want to ask um, both before we get into that, uh, uh, before we get into it with you, Tina, Randy, Mark, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing to be separated because of all the violence? Or does that do something to someone's psyche? It definitely does something to your psyche. And sometimes they put you there because they don't want to be bothered with you. 
And what do you mean? They'll put you in solitaire and you won't get any care. I mean, oh. you won't get no contact. You could get sick in solitaire. The officers will not attend to you. you. You're lucky if you get your food on time or that shower. So it's not like they're ex- they're taking extra no, care. No. It's just that you're separated. They're almost ignoring you. Ignoring you. Mm-hmm. That's the way to say, I don't want really to be bothered. If, if a trans person or a, a very... See, there's different grades of being gay. You have the very... Uh, flamboyant gay person that everyone can see, and then you have the people that don't really show it, like Mark and I. Mm-hmm. So, and if you known to be go, then you have to be tough. Mm-hmm. I had to be able to knock somebody before they knock me. Mm. You know, it's like okay, if you could fight harder than me, then you were cool. So we were able to like to integrate throughout the prison, but we could not save other LGBTQ people because it was just too much against us. Raping the abuse, the it was just terrible. Yeah. And and you weren't allowed to help if you saw somebody yeah, because were, then nah. they would come and attack you. Yeah. Or, so it, it almost was, leads to a mentality of yeah. like, I just have to be in my bubble and, exactly. you know, I kind of have to. How does that affect you as a person? Because I would think that that would be one of the hardest things to see. In the beginning, it didn't bother me mm-hmm. because in my mind, I was different. You When you're in jail, it's like the weak go under and they were weak. Okay. And that's how I associate it. I'm not going to ever be that weak. So a survival of the fittest, only the yeah. strong survive yeah. mentality. Yeah. So I had to gear my mind to, like, not focus on that, just focus on keeping me good. And speaking of this, you know, only the strong survive, uh, Randy, Mark, in your opinion, are older inmates more susceptible to violence? Do people see them as weaker in prison? Yes, they do. And, there, and there's no way to even reach out and help them because you think you would think that, OK, older means wiser sometimes or older means someone that might have been, you know, in the pr- prison for a while and might know all the rules and could help you out. But it's not seen like that. They're not seen as an asset necessarily. It's our older. Any mentors? You have to go through your time of initiation. We're not talking about jail for a short time. We're talking about a long term max prison. You're going to go through it. I don't care who you know or anything. You got to go through yours and find your spot wherever you fall out. After you go through your initiation, whether it's good, bad or not, you're going to fall in your spot. And that's where you learn to deal with the rest of your stay. In dealing with that mindset of jail, you do get mentors. Sometimes they're not mentors that you should be wanting to be around because some people play what we call the friend but they are there to abuse Stagger you. In the back. They will manipulate you, whether it's for what you get, because the extortion goes on. I play your friend. I'm protecting you, so tell your mother to send me this in my account. Or, yeah, blank, blank, around an amount of money it's or something extor- like that. It's friendly extortion oh, or cigarettes or whatever, because cigarettes were money. Right. So mm-hmm. people could friendly extort you. They'll say, I'm protecting you. As long as you're with me, you're okay. And they'll rob you out of everything you have. And then you have the men that just abuse other men, they say, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to cheat you out of fight. And then a couple of months later, you hear this young guy screaming mm. because they knew he was gay. It's, it's like a predator. Yeah. You know, they sit and watch. Oh, he's gay. He's trying to hold it. For so I'm try him. him. Uh, and then they get him. You hear the screamings at night. Mm. And this, the correction officers sit in their cubicles or in their spots and they just read their books. or do And they're hearing they, the same screaming. They won't are. even get up and go walk around. Tina, what did your research find about that? Uh, in the study we talked about, and Randy could probably speak to this, you know, based on his personal experience, they should have specialized housing units 
in prisons for LGBT people. They do that for aging people. And so why don't we put them in places where they don't have to worry about based on a social identity that the unit is not prepared yet to deal with the stigma of society that pervades inside the culture of prison against this group of people. Let me back it up one little bit. I want to talk about where does this culture change start? Does it start with lawmakers? Does it start within, you know, within the prisons? Where does the culture change and shift to begin to um, recognize the needs of LGBT prisoners? Where should that start? I think it needs to start with the law, but did it need to be filtered out in training? Like, we're hearing that police and correctional officers, uh, we're doing, I, I love Dr. Uh, Massey because of what she's doing. I, I work with her. We're even training social workers. Anybody that has a provider position is really important in giving these uh, people support. And that's your job. And black, white, straight, gay, fat, skinny, I'm here to do a service and I shouldn't be judgmental on who gets that service. And this is what needs to be taught. You are here to do a job. And no matter who sits in front of you or who you're defending or who you're uh, guarding, that job needs to be held to the highest of standards. And people can leave their preconceived notions at home. I don't care what your religion is or what your culture is. I'm here to do a job that suits people. I wanted to ask Randy and Mark, uh, uh, Dr. Mashey said, you know, uh, people need to help people get through. What helped you get through? Well, what, what helped me was my family. Yeah, how? They, they, they supported me. So when you came out, your family was there to say that was okay? And they loved you no matter what? Or? Yeah, my sister knew I was gay. From the get go, she knew before you knew. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so your family support is important. Yes. Uh, was there anybody when you were incarcerated outside of Randy that helped you out, Mark, or helped you to understand who you were and help you love yourself? No, I I, I did it on my own. You did I, it on your own. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Randy? I was a force to be reckoned with. So I was like, Doctor Massey talked about the trauma that we. LGBTQ people go through Um, and I had a mental illness and because of society you couldn't talk about this you couldn't talk about that I got no support so mine was one that I had to build up all this protection and and support I needed for myself which worked for me and then didn't work for me Um, I was able to protect myself and shield myself but it kept me angry it kept me on a defense where um, it was a, a time where I was sharing that I just got tired of being rejected, being abused, that I did not allow it to happen. So when I seen it, I would be the one that would, you know, fight would, back. Yes. Can I ask that you can, do you feel like sharing that? What mental illness you have? Oh, I have a schizophrenia. Schizophrenia? And major depression. And are you are handling that? Oh, well, now I need to say that that happened in six, eight. It happened when? In Sing Sing, before I came home. Um, I finally met a psychiatrist who was on board with asking me what happened and not what's wrong with you, Mm. which was a different uh, question. And I was able to relate to her in a way that I never, ever could because I've had psychiatrists that, you know, tried to medicate me being gay because he's not dealing with me being bonkers. You know, first we need to deal with making you find a woman. I don't want a woman. Well, there's something wrong with that. 
you know. Mm -hmm. So, and then the religious part, I had a grandmother, God bless the dead, she was evangelist. She never, ever gave me that. God loved me. But everything outside of her church was different. And I always felt indifferent in church, but I love to sing. I have a singing background. And so singing, directing was my thing. And praise became my way of relating to God. Um, I grew up highly religious. We went to church every day, Pentecostal. We prayed for an hour and a half on our knees mm-hmm. until I said, Grandma, no more knees, <laughs> you know, because my knees are bleeding. And you then know. you went to church in the morning and then the afternoon and then the evening. <laughs> service yeah. after service after uh-huh. service. Uh-huh. So I grew up in church. But as I got older and now I came into spirituality, what helps me with my contact and, and relationship with God um, and it keeps it more personal where no one has to distort it, tell me how to talk to God, how I should look, and God loves me and my relationship. And I know that he loves me because I've been blessed since since March and I came home with nothing. You know, we had destroyed family ties, me more than him. Um, and I didn't think anything would ever work for me. I really didn't. And this was my time of finding God in my own way, mm-hmm. in a new way that I never knew because I didn't get on my knees and say all this. So I spoke to God as a regular person and I felt the answer. And he said he had me. Now I want to talk about when you got out of jail. So Randy and Mark, what was it like? Uh, first of all, how long were each of you incarcerated? 16. 16 years? Yes. 11. 11. So now you're out. Uh, you have each other. You're you're in love. You are together. What was it like getting out of prison? Well, it was at first it was kind of strange because of the rules, the new, different ru- rules. The the atmosphere. The atmosphere. Coming home. I mean, because it was 16 years. I mean, cell phones change every what <laughs> thir- six months. Yeah. So uh, what was what was it like? The change. What had changed for you? The the street. The people, places, and things, mm-hmm. and the neighborhoods. The neighborhoods. What? Where did you come to? You got out of Sing Sing and, and moved to where? I went to my sister. In what state or town? In, in, the, Bronx. in the Bronx. In the Bronx? Yeah. Did you, Randy, move with him? No, at first. Not at first? Not at first. No? We were separate. Um, I came home, and I, I, I connected in jail to a program... Um, uh, Derek Blocker, he was the director. He gave the pres- presentation at uh, Sing Sing, which my psychiatrist, after getting me on medication, put me in a program, and it was the first year of the program called CORE. Core. And what did they do at CORE? And they s- put you in a separate, uh, on another side of uh, Sing Sing, where you wouldn't have to deal with population, and they would help you go to school, get ready for uh, coming into um, society. And um, so you were almost trained on yeah. what to expect once you got out. It was a, it was really good for me because every time I got out, I had not, no training. Which, Did you have so you didn't have to you didn't have a place to go no. necessarily? No, oh, okay. no. This was the first time that there was a talk about what you wanted to do because see the setup is that we send people back to where they are coming from. So what are you going to do? If you want to help somebody, try to give them a resource, give them a a choice. And I took the choice to go to this housing unit and it was beautiful. A three shared apartment, three bedrooms. And it was beautiful in Harlem, in the center of Harlem. And um, I went to my program every day. He suggested that because I had some uh, roommates that weren't 
as good as with their mental illness as I was. So I kept everything together. And he says, you have a way of working with people. Where are you working now, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I work at Rainbow Heights Club. It's a um, psychosocial um, advocacy support group um, club for LGBTQ people living with mental illness. Our services are psychosocial rehabilitation and peer support. Uh, we have over 600 members. We do a survey twice a year, and members tell us 90% of our members say they are able to stay out of the hospital and out of and in the community. You know, we have a meal program that's really important to our members. Every day at 4 o'clock, members get in the kitchen and cook their own meal, which brings family unity. You know, um, a lot of our um, members are estranged from family. So being there, having this support and building this network of family and friends and getting support in whatever they want to do. So who would you recommend to come if my listeners know somebody who might need help? Any LGBTQ person that is living with a mental illness and don't know what what it is they want to do. Um, it's that place where you can take a pit stop and get your thoughts together. You know, if you're not in the right care, we're going to help you get the next connect to some LGBT friendly uh, providers. I, and I do want to say in, in the study that many of the participants who were LGBT, but also they had uh, a mental illness, talked about Rainbow Heights as being the only service provider where they felt listened to, including with the criminal justice history. Uh, that they that they could feel accepted. So this idea of a community of love. I'd like to thank my guests, Randy Killings, Mark Pelopici, and Dr. Tina Mashey. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kyle McKee. You can friend Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.